Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. At half past seven on Christmas morning 1961, when I was just one year old, Dada roused my five older sisters. Look at what Santa Claus brought us during the night, he said, as he led the girls into his room. Mama was sitting up in the bed, cradling a newborn baby. They were jumping with excitement as each in turn was allowed to view their newest sister, a tightly wrapped bundle swaddled in a yellow baby blanket. Soon it was time to go to Mass, in their freshly polished shoes with knee-high white socks and wearing red woolen winter coats, they skipped all the way to Chapel Street, knowing that they'd received the most special present in Castlebar that day. With my parents' deep faith and devotion, their seventh child was named Muel Issa, servant of Jesus, simplified to Melissa. Just how special Melissa was became apparent as she entered her childhood. At Mass, Melissa would become agitated when the bells jingled during the consecration. One day, a visiting specialist from St. John of God's in Dublin observed Melissa's reaction in church. Outside afterwards, he approached Mama and offered to undertake a psychological assessment. So Melissa was four when her intellectual disability was confirmed. However, there were no facilities for children like her in County Mayo at the time. In fact, it was commonplace for families all over Ireland to hide their children with special needs at home during that era. Railing against this inequality, Dada and two other fathers with similar children in Castlebar, Tom Fallon and Johnny Mee, decided to call a public meeting to discuss the lack of services. Expecting a modest turnout, they were astonished when more than 100 parents crowded into a small upstairs meeting room of the Imperial Hotel. Indeed, they feared the floorboards wouldn't bear the weight of all the attendees. From that initial gathering, a new voluntary community group emerged, which in the intervening decades has developed into the Western Care Association. By the time Melissa was seven, St Anthony's, a new national school, backed by the Department of Education, was opened. Within ten years, the boundless enthusiasm and superhuman efforts of this Mayo-wide community organisation had led to the opening of three special needs national schools, six group homes and a specialist residential unit across the county. After their ninth child was born, Mama and Dada's family was complete. At Christmas time, our house, full of mostly teenagers, was dynamic and often stressful. I have this image from secondary school chemistry classes where a blob of mercury is put in a Petri dish. Move the dish even slightly and the mercury splits into multiple parts, each droplet bouncing off the next. It's almost impossible to get that mercury back into a single blob. That was our family at Christmas time. As we grew up and went our separate ways, Melissa remained as our focal point the glue that bound us together. As her disabilities progressed over the decades, as a family, 
we remain true to our parents and indeed Melissa's own wishes that she live an independent and fulfilling life. Reading Mills and Boone romantic novels was her enduring passion. When you've no romance in your life, it's good to read about it, she would often say with a wicked smile. Yet despite the myriad challenges she faced, Melissa's daily life was full of love and fun. And especially so around Christmas time, as her birthday retained its importance as a major family event, regardless of how dispersed we all were. Every year, a stylish new Harrods teddy bear was added to the large collection that sat shoulder to shoulder on her bedroom shelf. In recent years, she used Zoom to receive birthday greetings from her siblings based in Boston, London, Dublin and Mulrani. At the beginning of March this year, after a long period of illness, Melissa went to bed in good form and an hour later she was dead. After all she had been through during the previous six months, it was a beautiful, peaceful release, enveloped by loved ones in the comfort of her own home. Melissa's parting means that this Christmas will be very different for our family and her many friends. The feeling of loss and loneliness will be most acute on Christmas morning, with the harsh realisation that there's no birthday girl to be fated this year. Yet we will take comfort from the knowledge that the 61 years of Melissa's life were both happy and consequential. She, along with Tom Fallon Jr. and Mary Mee, were catalysts for an extraordinary growth in special needs facilities in County Mayo, services that continue to help so many families right up to today. This is a poem I wrote inspired by the Italian painter Luca Signorelli. I had been in Cortona in Italy and I went to see an exhibition of his and this poem just came to me. It's called Annunciation. Such haste, the angel racing in from the side of the frame. He has entered the picture with purpose. I have news and it imbues me with gravity. Do not brush me aside, he says. Wind of his wings, a billow of ruby gown, his auburn hair swept back, and I imagine a peacock feather plaited there, a dazzling blue that stops the woman in her tracks. The seed of surprise is already settled deep inside of her, a mystery she must accept. She who has slept as a virgin until now, her face cooled by the wall she pressed her young face to every night. And yet she knew this day might come, this rustling of godly power, her chamber lit with her future, and she 
willing to do what is asked of her, go the distance. When I was a child, my two unmarried aunts opened a bookshop in Waterford. They called it Waterford Books. Standing on a corner across from the Savoy Cinema on Broad Street, it was a decent-sized premises, with bookshelves around the walls and stands for paperbacks and postcards. The upper floor was used for stock and, once a year, to display Christmas annuals, those large, shiny, hardback editions of popular comics that were much prized by children like myself. During the Christmas holidays, I was put in charge of this space. My aunts were quiet, reserved ladies in early middle age. They lived in Barker Street with their mother, my grandmother, in a terraced house where the rosary was said every evening. My aunts had no experience in retail, books or otherwise, and I had never seen either of them reading a novel. Clearly, these circumstances called for a crash course in running a bookshop. Enter Mrs Kenny, the well-known matriarch of the Galway book empire bearing her name. Mrs Kenny arrived in Waterford and was invited to stay in Barker Street. The idea of two ingenue ladies entering the world of books must have appealed to Mrs Kenny. She stayed the best part of a week, instructing my aunts in how to turn the canon of literature into a retail project. The sales reps who came to present their lists must soon have gauged the lie of the land in Waterford books. Safe ground could be found with dignified hardbacks of history or biography. Anything to do with the English monarchy sailed in, as did Boswell's journals, although my spotless aunts could never have imagined what lay between Boswell's covers. Books by or about Horatio Bottomley, Lawrence of Arabia and Noel Coward always got the nod, as did the New Testament in modern English. Churchill was a shoe-in. Irish politics were mainly avoided, particularly if Mr de Valera was involved. It was harder going for the reps when it came to selling in fiction. Hardbacks in dust jackets that mainly stated the title and author in large letters looked respectable. Paperbacks, on the other hand, other than penguin paperbacks, had begun to put vivid illustrations on their covers. Pan paperbacks were prominent in this regard and had engaged artists adept at presenting young women in various challenging poses, often with their clothes either torn or partly missing. Nowadays these covers wouldn't raise an eyebrow, but back then, in Waterford, these teasing images of thighs and low bodices flirted with the boundaries of delicacy. I recall one such sales presentation to one of my aunts, I don't remember the title of the book, in which the cover showed a rascally man wearing an eye patch with his boot on the back of a scantily dressed young woman, preventing her escape. 
This one is doing very, very well, proclaimed the rep. My aunt stared at the cover and then at the rep, as if she had just been made an indecent proposal. High on my aunt's list of unsuitable targets were the novels of Harold Robbins and Ian Fleming, whose reputations preceded them and whose racy covers spoke for themselves. In their defence, my aunts had grown up in an Ireland where every book was filtered through the Committee on Evil Literature, a stalwart body set up by Kevin O'Higgins in 1926, and which laid the groundwork over the following 40 years to defend Irish public morality from the likes of Proust, Faulkner, Hemingway, to mention just some. In this light, my aunt's commitment to a new bookshop, a vector for sensual indulgences, can be seen as heroic. I was ten years old when, during the Christmas holidays, I became part of this little team. The festive season then, as now, was harvest time for bookshops, and my upstairs room with its high stacks of annuals did a brisk trade. But when I wasn't being interrupted by customers, I could spend my time with my head stuck in Kit Carson or The Topper or Roy of the Rovers. I mean literally stuck in. For what I now remember most vividly is not the stories in those annuals, but the smell of glue. Nothing I had experienced to then could equal sitting peacefully upstairs in Waterford Books, opening a brand new Beano annual and running my nose up the binding. Once open and sniffed, the book seemed to lose its potency, so I reached for another. There were hundreds of annuals. I had the best job in the world. Waterford Books has long closed, but across the lane from where it once stood, in a leap worthy of zoonosis, the former Savoy Cinema is now the book centre. It's a great, enthusiastic bookshop with book-laden galleries facing the wall where the big screen once showed John Wayne riding through girth-high Montana snowdrifts. Over the intervening decades, and especially when Christmas comes around, all I have to do is open the centrefold of a glossy magazine and run my nose up the binding to be transported back to those long-ago days when I sniffed my way through Christmas. Hanukkah. Last Thursday was the first day of Hanukkah, and I lit a candle to memory, the soft flicker of a single flame, the first of eight candles, to be lit throughout the days of this holiday, lights up a faint nostalgia in me for the old copper menorah in my childhood home, the traditional candelabra standing guard in the darkened window. It had been smuggled from hiding place to hiding place during World War II, getting battered and dented along the way. But there it was, years later, ready to shine on our childish faces. I linger in that nostalgia for the duration 
of the burning of this one candle. The next two candles could hold a promise of presence for all, of songs to be sung, and that the flaming light might last. According to the story, the lights kept burning for eight days, even though there was only enough oil for one. Eight candles are lit in total to celebrate a miracle and in memory of people being liberated from an oppressor to live in freedom. The winter cold encloses our days in Dublin where we stay inside and read off screens or pages to learn or even wish sometimes we could unlearn what others tell us about the world. We watch small miracles unfold around us. They light up briefly, like Hanukkah candles. Over the course of the last year, I have sat for long hours among sick human beings, some of whom share the same ailment I suffer from, who keep their heads bent as if their newly acquired baldness is too heavy a weight for them to be able to sit up straight and look up maybe to a future. For me, a future would mean more understanding and the ability to strike a match and cast a miraculously lasting light on the events in our lives, to line up facts into minute details, including the insufferable misunderstandings of war, racial injustice, poverty, hunger and incurable illnesses. I'm not a religious person, and what I have learned from reading various writings from different faiths has always only been of cultural interest to me. However, when performing Bach's compositions, I hope I adhered to his Christian faith, whereas improvising music with my Iranian or Indian musician friends led me into Muslim or Buddhist worlds, reaching for a different tonal horizon. I have stood and admired many paintings by the great Italian and Flemish masters that represented their profound belief in religious myth and stories. Amongst them is an etching by Rembrandt called The Star of the Kings, which refers to the biblical story of the three kings and twelfth night, when three kings bearing gifts followed a star which led them to the infant Jesus in Bethlehem. These days, I can often get quite tired, and sometimes, when out for a walk, I need to sit down for a bit to rest. A week or so ago, I couldn't walk any further and had to sit down on a bench in a pedestrian street in Dublin city centre. It was cold, and I noticed that the man sitting beside me was wearing lots of layers over his hoodie. He was smoking a rolled cigarette when he turned to me. His eyes were dark, nearly black. His bearded face looked like a figure from a Caravaggio or a Rembrandt painting. I greeted him with a slightly exhausted hi, and he told me he was Ibrahim from Egypt. He worked as a chef in a nearby pizzeria. He was from Alexandria, 
originally, and we quickly sailed over to Egypt in our chat about the magical library there. We even ended up singing a bit of music by the legendary Egyptian singer Um Kalsum, who had been one of the first to take me to a different universe outside the European repertoire. Meanwhile, Ibrahim was very kind to me, as concerned about my well-being as if I were his closest friend. He could not return to Egypt at the moment, he said. He had to stay in Dublin, where he was hoping for a miracle to happen. I nodded. That made two of us. I kept looking at his biblical appearance, trying to place him into a painting, a time frame, and then I remembered Rembrandt's The Star of the Kings. It was clear to me then that I had met one of them, Ibrahim, the pizza chef, who was smoking away while gifting me with kindness. Now it is Hanukkah, the Jewish holiday of long-lasting light, of gifts, of songs that can be sung in any language or tonality as far as I am concerned, of an everlasting fight against the oppressors of miracles. I had met a king who gave me the gift of kindness. As for a miracle, well, I will hold on to my battered, smuggled menorah. Ya Habibi Ya Habibi Illi do isma Wanqumu wa amaru Amaru sagaru Wanta wana Pop went the champagne cork. To the baby boy, we all cheered. A gang of old friends gathered in a favourite pub in London. All wood panel and mirrors, and loud with the din of conversation and the clatter of crockery. It was December 2010, the tail end of a weekend of pre-Christmas revelry, and spirits were high, our table overcrowded with the detritus of a Sunday lunch. Just when it seemed that the aura of yuletide joy couldn't glow any brighter, news had arrived that one of our friends had given birth to a baby boy, and his jubilant father and grandmother joined us from the nearby hospital. And so to the toasts. Afternoon turned into evening, our celebrations growing more expansive, while outside a heavy snow fell, blanketing the darkened city in a thick coat of perfect white. If it all sounds a bit too much like a Richard Curtis film, well, it probably was. Cut to the next morning, and the jaunty chime of the alarm ringing out at 5 a.m., along with news that all flights out of London had been cancelled. 
Yesterday's merriment had curdled into a pounding, bone-deep hangover as I trudged along now icy streets to a friend's house for a last-minute lift to Dublin. Love actually was about to turn into the road. After monosyllabic greetings, we got in and braced ourselves for the five-hour drive to Hollyhead, and 20 minutes later had yet to move an inch. Dion, our driver, who had been wise enough to skip the previous day's carousing, tried repeatedly to coax the car onto the road as the back tires spun uselessly in the snow. We gave a despondent push, but it was pointless. We were completely stuck. Time and hope seemed to be ebbing away as I contemplated possible outcomes. Christmas in Neesden? A Tesco finest festive dinner for one? Then, with a final grim show of resolve, Dion revved the engine and by some miraculous geometry swung us out past the car in front with millimetres to spare. We were on our way. London's North Circular Road on a Monday morning is not known for sparking joy, but on this day, boy, did it ever. The rest of the journey went by in a blur, literally. I'm not entirely sure what freezing fog is, but I know we crawled through a lot of it, so thick in places that we could barely see the sides of the road. In those hours, gazing out of the windscreen from the back seat, I thought about the year that had been. Not a great one, as it happened, bruising on various fronts. And there, in some unknown part of North Wales, I felt glad to be heading home to family and friends and seeing the back of it. Then, finally, Hollyhead. We made the ferry by the skin of our teeth, congratulating ourselves on the epic journey. We were home and dry. Only we weren't. <laughs> Arriving in Dublin, we were greeted by another scene from a film, an apocalyptic one this time, as two ferries disgorged and 2,000 cars sat unmoving, bumper to bumper in the falling snow. It took us four hours to get from Dublin Port to the East Link Bridge that evening. <laughs> four hours. I don't remember much about that odd limbo, what we listened to or talked about. Probably we just sat in that exhausted silence you can comfortably share with old friends. I do remember abandoning Dion when we reached Ring's End, an utter betrayal, and wishing him luck getting to Dunleary. <laughs> it might as well have been the North Pole. And so the day ended as it had begun, with me dragging my wheelie case along a dark snowy street, only this time it was the road I grew up on, and the feelings were of euphoric relief as my parents greeted me at our front door, enveloping me in hugs. That odyssey will always stay with me for obvious reasons, although in truth, there have been countless Christmas journeys home that stir up memories, all characterized by those annual rituals that every returning expat will recognize. A few years ago, I found myself welling up at the Brennan's Bread Home for Christmas sign at Dublin Airport baggage carousel <laughs> and berated myself for being so easily manipulated by a sentimental slogan on the site of a batch loaf. 
And should I ever return to these shores for good, I know that I'll miss that short, unremarkable journey from London to Dublin that has punctuated the past two decades. Certainly, I'm not the same person I was when I made it for the first time in 2000, or even back in that memorable Christmas of 2010. With middle age comes the dawning that ready or not, change will come and life will take you to places you didn't necessarily plan on going. But if you're very lucky, there will be a few good friends by your side on the journey who will help you through the fog as another year recedes into the rearview mirror. Winter Solstice, Rose Window, Notre Dame Cathedral. I'm soaring backwards through a telescope, inverting me towards the very edge of time. And there it is, bang, light, the breaking of the veil of night. And see, I'm staring into the iris of God, the moment of creation. Vast unfolding petals revolve me slowly this way, that way, from colours into white, and I'm becoming part of the moment, frozen in this giant glassy fossil embedded in old stone. This rose thawed each day, this rose in which I see the very start, for then and now and now, the flare in primal dark, first flinted, spark, On this morning's programme, we heard John Egan's A Special Child is Born, Annunciation after Luca Signorelli, a poem by Enda Wiley, A Sniff of Christmas was by Peter Cunningham, Hanukkah by Judith Mock, The Journey Home by Catherine Heaney, and Solstice, Rose Window, Notre Dame Cathedral, a poem by James Harper. The music was Iha Nolig, sung by Angela O'Flynn with Steve Cooney on guitar and Ryan Malloy on piano. Ave Maria, Bach Gounod, played by Yo-Yo Ma and Catherine Stott. Snow, Prelude Number no. 3 by Ayanaudi, played by Dalal. Alf, Leila Wa Leila by the Egyptian singer Um Kultum. And Rainy Night in Soho by Shane McGowan, arranged by Joe Chibby and sung by Colm Warren and Maeve Smith with Shane McVicker on piano.
That song and Catherine Heaney's script were recorded earlier this week in the National Concert Hall in Dublin as part of Sunday Miscellany's Christmas celebrations with the RTE Concert Orchestra. And we'll have more from that event and the Christmas concert in the National Opera House in Wexford in programmes coming up over the next few weeks. And there is a CD of Angelo Flynn's album of Christmas carols in Irish, Glorn and Angle, featuring Steve Cooney and Ryan Malloy. And that's available to buy at irishcarols.ie. And it comes with a booklet of original English translations of the carols. And all profits go to the Kildare charity Homeless Care. On sound in the National Concert Hall were Gar Duffy and Damien Gavigan. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.